Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Arielle Laurie, and this is the Blonde Files podcast, where I talk to experts, influencers, and inspirational people in the world of wellness and beyond. Whether it's mental health, spirituality, nutrition, gut health, hormones, exercise, meditation, entrepreneurship, beauty hacks, and procedures, I cover it here with real conversations and even realer guests. I know you're as curious as I am, so I'm asking the questions for you, and you get to listen in. Welcome to the show. I am so happy you're here. I'm super pumped about today's episode. It is something that everybody always asks me about. People always want to know about gut health. So who better to talk about this with than Rob Yang? If you've been with me since day one, he was my first guest here on the podcast. He has helped me with my gut health over the years. And I know after he and I started doing a lot on Instagram together, you guys have worked with him too. So I had to have him back on and talk about all things gut. So we get into a lot here. We talk about SIBO, we talk about hormones, how hormones affect gut health and how gut health affects our hormones, Um, what to do if your gut is off. We talk about stress and its ramifications, exercise and stress, how to tailor exercise for your body. I know this is something that a lot of people are curious about. We also talk about elimination, of course, sleep. We talk vegan protein sources, meal and snack ideas. You get it. This episode is just chock full of information and so many helpful tips. So I really think you're going to find it useful. As always, if you enjoy this episode or the podcast in general, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a big difference for the show, and I really, really appreciate you and your support always. So without further ado, Rob Yang. Okay, Rob Yang is back on the podcast. I am back. (laughs) I think you were my first guest guest ever on the podcast i can't remember if it was you or kelsey wells because i recorded you guys around the same time but no rob was the first okay angie is saying (laughs) angie is saying rob was the first so pretty pretty crazy that we're back here again i know really excited to chat um it's been what a year now almost a year it'll be a year in april i think we recorded in like february though okay something like that 
Um, I would say go back and listen to that episode, but <laughs> the sound quality is much better now. We're going to yeah. talk about some of the same things, but um, I think it'll just be a better quality conversation overall. So um, I'm really excited to chat. Cool. I announced on Instagram that you were coming on and asked people what they wanted to hear. And of course, the Let resounding answer Something to do with the gut. rhymes with mut mouth <laughs> yeah gut health everybody wanted to hear about gut health mm-hmm. um which is a really broad topic as we know yep um but we will try to kind of simplify it and talk about the main yep. points that um are relevant to a lot of people today and then maybe segue into some fasting that's a really hot topic right now and we've talked about that on igtv yep um which we also did a while ago and uh we'll just see what else happens? Okay. See where it goes. Yeah. So why don't we begin by you just introducing yourself to the listeners? Okay. So um, thanks for having me on. Um, so my background, I wear different hats in my practice. So sometimes like we're sitting in my studio, which is a gym. And so sometimes I'm working as a strength coach um, with an athlete or it could be, you know, someone who wants to just improve their golf game. And then um, probably I would say 60% of my time um, I'm working with clients, you know, um, globally, Skype, FaceTime, about nutrition, gut health, hormones, detoxification. Um, Normally I find though is if we can help someone with their gut health, then oftentimes hormones start to stabilize. We still need to probably do some work if it's someone who has some major issues going on. Um, But um, that in a nutshell is what I'm doing in my practice. That reminds me of actually one of the questions that I had way down here, but about gut health and hormones and how they're interrelated. And even Mm. like I know for me, when I first came to see you a couple of years ago, I thought my main problem was PCOS. Right, right. (laughs) I had gone to doctor after doctor getting a diagnosis of PCOS. And I thought that all of my symptoms, my brain fog, my fatigue, my bloating, my nausea, all of it was attributed to that because that's what I was being told. And um, you told me otherwise. And that completely like opened my (laughs) eyes to all of this. And it's crazy. I think a lot of people have the same experience. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, normally someone says, well, my my menstrual cycle's off or, you know, my hormones are off or I'm getting tired all the time. And so normally what they want to do is they usually say, hey, Rob, I want to, you know, test my adrenal glands or my hormones. And and normally that's why I have people fill paperwork because oftentimes there's questions that I have them answer. And if they start clicking off different things like, they've had acid reflux or they're having a little bit of constipation or diarrhea, then oftentimes we need to go with the gut first. And um, I've, I've made the mistake of uh, addressing the hormones first. And it's sort of like mm, the results are kind of just average. So sometimes people feel a bit better, but they still don't feel like they resolve their issues. And so um, the, And I think the main question is, well, how does the gut affect the hormones? And so I tell people um, before, like for a female, like um, if we're looking at the menstrual cycle and estrogen, progesterone and luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, yes, there may be some kind of dysfunction there, but 
we need to take a step back and say, okay, well, look, let's, let's see what the adrenal glands are doing. Let's see if there's any sort of dysfunctional levels there. Because ultimately, if someone is uh, highly stressed, so they have a lot of stress in their you know, personal life and, and professional life, then that's going to impact their hormonal output already. So we need to look at that. But even going a step further, um, the reason why we have to look at the gut is because if there's any sort of either pathogenic overgrowth or food sensitivities or lack of acid enzymes, whatever the issue is, that's going to overall affect the adrenal health and then and, and stress. And then that's going to also affect your hormones. So, um, and the reason why the gut has such a huge impact on hormones is that when you have, let's say, uh, a yeast overgrowth or someone's, you know, struggling with bloating, they have SIBO, with that, uh, that's with someone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that internal stressor is something that is sort of flying underneath the radar and it's not really dealt with. And so oftentimes that has a, a huge profound impact on someone's adrenal health uh, over the long haul. So a lot of people that don't do well on the whatever adrenal program that they put on pregnenolone, DHA, and all these other things, and all these supplements, most likely it's because, well, you had to deal with whatever gut issue there was. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, yeah. and I don't know if you can answer this, but like out of all the people that you see that have gut issues, obviously they have, like you said, the stress of having that going on 24-7, but then yep. how many people also have a lot of external stress or perceived stress? Like how prevalent is that? Is it always, is it like the exception or is it the rule that people that have gut issues also have a lot of stress? Yeah, I, I think um, it's usually the, the rule. And so that's why when I... Oh, yeah. So that's why when I um, evaluate someone initially, um, I always do a thorough history. So I always say, well, when did your symptoms start, whatever they are? And they go, oh, I started about a year ago. And normally if I go backwards and I talk about their history, you know, a year ago, whatever, it's normally always going to be, you know, what's very common is, they have a lot of stress with maybe they're finishing exams at school and then, you know, their favorite uncle passed away and then, um, and then they just said, screw it. I'm just gonna, you know, <laughs> drink like a fish and I'm not watching my diet at all. And the exercise goes out the window. And so usually there's an accumulation of or culmination of events that happens. And then they start getting a lot of symptoms after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's, kind of simplify this for <laughs> the listeners because we hear the term gut health thrown around everything it's very hot right now and right. a lot it's great for marketing right mm. but what exactly do we mean when we say gut health yeah that's a very good question um i think with gut health um you know it's it's not just the extreme so normally we see the extremes of someone with IBS or IBD or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. And, and obviously those are major gut issues where there's a very unhealthy gut. Um, but the, what the definition of gut health should be is someone that digests their food well, like they have a bowel movement every day. That's the first, first sign that you have good health. And within the bowel movement every day, 
um, the consistency should be pretty, you know, normal. So it should like, I, my perfect balance is like a brown banana. Basically that's what I tell people. And then we have one spectrum of constipation and the other ones like diarrhea. So we want to be right in the middle with a, a brown banana. Um, and then obviously they shouldn't have any sort of irritation to their, um, stomach or they shouldn't have any distension going on. So they shouldn't have, feel like they have to unbutton their, you know, their belt buckle or anything like that after they eat their food. Um, oftentimes people, um, and mostly men don't really aren't paying attention to that. So that's why I would say probably 90% of my clients for gut health are female because they, you know, what they wear tight clothes, they're very aware of their bodies. And so you shouldn't have those things Like you shouldn't have excessive belching or excessive farting, things like that. So I think, um, there, there has to be, you know, um, someone who's, is feeling comfortable in their body, um, in terms of gut health. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the absence of ulcerative colitis or di or uh, diarrhea or constipation. Like it, it goes beyond that for gut health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most people they'll tell you, you know, they'll like, you came to me and said, you know, having definitely some gut issues, you know, going on and, and they vary from person to person, but ultimately a person will know whether they have healthy gut or not mm -hmm. just by their symptoms. So what are some of the less obvious symptoms though? Cause those are kind of mm -hmm. more acute ones, but yep. like we were talking about before, when I came to see you, I also had fatigue and nausea, yep. brain fog, mm -hmm. um, you know, things besides the obvious yeah. bloating and all of that. Yeah. I was a, one of the, um, um, not so obvious symptoms, um, is the skin. Mm. Mm -hmm. So people that have um, eczema, atopic dermatitis, um, dry, itchy skin, um, those are all definite signs that, okay, something is going on within the, the gut that mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Whether it's food sensitivities or a pathogenic overgrowth, um, those are things that definitely need to be looked at. Um, another one is uh, joints. Mm. So I've had... Um, quite a few people that once we start to improve um, their gut health, then a lot of their joint pain starts to decrease. Mm -hmm. So they're going to see, you know, the massage therapist, the acupuncturist, the orthopedic. And, you know, some people do have some structural issues, but um, some people that uh, don't have structural issues or they have, you know, uh, issue with their medial meniscus, um, oftentimes you start to take care of inflammation within the gut and then their pain starts to dissipate mm -hmm. and goes away. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, you know, the skin joints would be one. Um, you mentioned brain fog. Mm -hmm. So we know that if your gut is inflamed, your brain's going to be inflamed. Mm -hmm. um, and vice versa, you can go the other way. So if someone, for example, I had a, a young man who um, played football for a num number of years, very successful in college, and so a lot of head traumas, and then he had another event on a jet ski, and he had severe digestive issues after that. Hmm. Um, so it can go both ways. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes with someone like that, um, you almost need to treat both ends. So it's not, it's kind of like chicken or egg, what came first, right. right? Well, who cares? We just, there's just a gut issue and there's a brain issue. So you got to do both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the long-term implications of gut issues? Like what? Yeah. If it goes untreated. Oh, if it goes untreated. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, some of the the issues long-term um, are going to be an overflow into other systems. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
I would say um, the biggest factor for, uh, for example, like if we just take constipation um, as an issue, mm-hmm. is that because constipation, you're, someone's backed up, so they're not properly limiting every day, well, that becomes an issue overall systemically, and then eventually it overloads the liver. So with someone that, um, that is constipated for a long period of time, it, they're going to have liver issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, there's more research showing there's a, I wouldn't say cause and effect, but typically the high percentage of people with Alzheimer's are constipated. So constipation, they're mm-hmm. saying, is sort of an early sign of possibly someone having a possible risk factor for, all, for Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, from the long-term perspective, um, you do have to be concerned with those things because obviously with bowel movements and, you know, we're talk, always talking about poop. Um, if you're not properly limiting every day, then it's just one way that you're toxifying your body every day. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to release those toxins. Right. And what if you're eliminating too much? Right. So that's the other spectrum. So then that, what we're concerned with is malabsorption. Mm-hmm. So obviously people losing weight or not maintaining their muscle mass. And that's very important, and not just from an aesthetic point of view, but just from an um, anti-aging effect. Mm-hmm. So we want to be able to maintain our muscle mass because the more muscle mass you, mean, you maintain, the more you're increasing your metabolic rate, um, the more you protect your hips, your knees, your joints, just in case you fall. Um, so that's one of the um, concerns that I have long-term uh, for people. Okay, so we know that it's very specific to whatever the issues are going on and mm-hmm. everybody is different and our bodies and bioindividuality and all of that. Where, if somebody thinks that they have something amiss, mm-hmm. what's the best place to start? Maybe like walk us through the phases. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the the best place to start is you, you do have to establish some foundational uh, principles with people. And so, um, you know, my, my book, Hole-in-One Nutrition, it's obviously geared towards golfers, hole-in-one. Um, but a lot of my colleagues have said, hey, Rob, you need to write this and just rename it, um, you know, for it could be whatever it is for athletes or energy issue. But um, the principles there um, are very, very important for gut health or hormonal health. So my, my sort of food pyramid at the bottom tier is water, and then the second tier is whole food. And then the third tier would be supplementation. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the simple foundation of just drinking water is so important um, from a number of per- perspectives for joint health. Uh, more specifically, um, just recently I found an article that um, one glass of water was just as effective as taking Tums for re- reflux. So if people are struggling with reflux out there, like instead of reaching for the Tums, reach for a glass of water. Mm. Um, and Imagine that. that. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and there's a guy, Dr. Batman Yelich, who, um, who um, wrote a book, Your Many Cries for Water. He talks about treating people with dyspepsia with water. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that foundation has to be there. So I've always said half your body mounts is the water. Um, if you're on the metric system, it's one liter per 30 kilos um, of water per day. And that's your foundational intake of water. Um, and that helps a number of different, you know, aspects of brain health. Um, it actually will help with um, with stress, stress reduction in terms mm-hmm. of cortisol production and so forth. 
Um, so that's really, I, I say it all the time, but and to me, I'm like, gosh, it sounds so simple, but really it's simple and it's effective. And water first thing in the morning. Yeah. So simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so effective. It's just yeah. nobody wants to do it. Everyone wants to reach for the coffee or the tea or whatever yeah, that yeah. has the caffeine because they think that's going to wake you up. But yeah. um, I drink a huge bottle of water first thing in the morning right. and it helps everything. Yeah. And it helps me feel more alert before I even have to get my matcha or any of mm-hmm. that. And it helps elimination and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it helps a tremendous amount. I mean, I can't tell so many people that even extremes where people are like, oh my God, I used to have to drink three cups of coffee in the morning and I had to drink half a cup now mm-hmm. when I drink my 25% of my total intake first thing in the morning. And I'm going, wow, it is that simple, you know, when mm-hmm. I keep hearing those things. Because sometimes I forget and then I'm like, oh no, like clients keep telling me, hey, Robert, water really made a difference, you know? So yeah. um, that that really is that foundational principle that people need to follow, whether they have gut issues or hormones or skin issue, whatever it is. Okay. So say that they're doing that Mm -hmm. and they're still experiencing whatever symptoms. Right. So when is it, well, let's kind of go step by step. So Mm -hmm. what would be the next thing to do? Yeah. The next part of that would be obviously looking at food, right? Because that's what we do at least three times a day, if not maybe four or five. Um, So I've always said, what's really critical when it comes to food is stabilizing someone's blood sugar. And so, uh, and that is across the board for even with someone with PCOS or someone, you know, who's just struggling with energy. And so what I've told people, and you've heard me say this, your BFF for blood sugar control is PFF. So we're talking proteins, we're talking fats, and then we're talking fiber. And the reason why I came up with that is that I was trying to, think of something that was obviously simple and something that would be easy for people to remember, my clients to remember and athletes to remember. And so all those different uh, macronutrients, proteins by itself, fat by itself, fiber by themselves or by itself has shown to really kind of cause a slow release of blood sugar. And then when you combine all three of them, it's a synergistic effect. And so that's why um, I recommend that sort of uh, a principle-based plan. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be 40% protein and, you know, 32.1% fat, right. you know. Like, yeah. it's a principle-based program. Um, and the reason why that's so important because it helps stabilize blood sugar. And whether it's someone with gut issues or whether it's someone with, with hormonal issues, stabilizing blood sugar is really, really key because if you're not stabilizing your blood sugar, so whether you're skipping meals or whether you're eating the wrong type of meals that, that cause your blood sugar to go up and down, that in in essence is uh, a minor stress to the body. Um, obviously, if you really, you know, have a bad diet, you're drinking sugar all the time and coffee and donuts and stuff like that, then your blood sugar is really kind of like that big roller coaster effect. And that in itself is a massive stress. And then because your blood sugar is skyrocketing and it's peaking, you're going to valley. And once you valley, as it starts to valley, your body's trying to seek homeostasis, right? A balance. And so that's the job of cortisol is to help to balance out blood sugar. But if you didn't eat all that crap food or if you didn't, if you stabilize your blood sugar to begin with, you wouldn't have that stress. Mm-hmm. So now cortisol is able to do its other many jobs in the body. Mm-hmm. And so that's why a lot of people go, oh my gosh, like, 
I don't know what it is, but ever since you changed my food around, I'm sleeping better. Mm. And I tell them, well, the reason why you're sleeping better is because you're stabilizing cortisol. And now cortisol levels are in a better rhythm. And so now your body is probably producing melatonin at a more efficient rate at night. Mm-hmm. And your blood sugar is not all over the place. So something about PFF is that it's there's animal protein usually involved. Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of vegans follow me. And I'm sure you get this question a lot. <laughs> yes, But a I vegan do. diet is carb heavy and not very rich in protein unless you're eating a ton of nuts and tofu and legumes right and stuff right 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 so um without telling people to you know eat animal (laughs) products what's yeah what's like a good solution for that if you have one well i i mean i'm not a huge proponent of of going vegan i think um, people need some animal products. Um, and, and there's some people that do really well, but you know, I, I tell people, look, if you're doing well, then you wouldn't be asking me a question or you wouldn't be seeking other advice. Right. Mm. Um, and so I tell people, look, I go, you know, the, the couple issues involved is that one, if you're seeking just vegan sources of protein, you're quite limited or like you had just alluded to that. Well, it's very carb heavy. Like it kind of has to be because if you're going to do legumes, yeah, you get protein, some protein, but the the ratio from protein to carbohydrates is quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, you get a decent amount of fiber, which is good. Um, so that's where people struggle with. Um, in in the in the very few cases in terms of working with vegans, um, what we probably need to do is probably use more protein powders mm-hmm. than what I would like, mm-hmm. um, and. I've never really advocated tons, a ton of usage of protein powders, even if someone didn't have digestive issues. And people said, oh, man, you could recommend this protein powder and make a lot of money. I'm like, well, that doesn't do me any sort of, um, I mean, financially would help me, but it doesn't help my client. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I found that, yeah, you can use some protein powders, but in the grand scheme of things, is probably not the best issue. That's why I always say, hey, whole foods first, and then I would look at protein powder more as a supplement rather than, you know, a, um, a whole food. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, with, with, with vegans, they're probably going to need to go with more protein powders. Um, I'm not a big fan of soy just because it's such a processed um, food protein. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's obviously fluctuations of, of different hormones that can happen with estrogen as well. So we have to be careful of that as well. Um, so yeah, in a nutshell, I'm not a huge fan of vegan proteins cause they're an incomplete source of protein as well. So that can become a problem. People ask me on Instagram for specific meal or snack ideas that yeah. are PFF. Do you have anything that's like a go-to? Like I, I think people really struggle with breakfast, especially, mm-hmm. um, like we'll probably talk about some common irritants, but if somebody's having an issue with eggs, yep. um, what a good breakfast idea would be. Yeah. Um, are we talking in the context of a gut issue probably or not? Or mm, Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, I, uh, I would first say that um, what's important in terms of the, the concept of breakfast and PFF is to really try to change your mindset. Um it's only in America where it's eggs, bacon, sausage, toast, blah, 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 pancakes, right? So I would try and really, I'd tell my clients to say, hey, you know, you tested positive for eggs on your food sensitivity. 
However, you know, I know you love eggs, you have a rude day, but let's venture out and let's try to have some different types of food. You know, I, I would say the easiest thing is to have dinner foods for breakfast. Mm -hmm. uh, just because from preparation point of view, it's easy. You just heat it up on a pan and then, you know, there's not much prep involved. Um, so I would say that would be the first option. Um, so you could do that, you know, twice a week, maybe three times a week. Um, the, the other option, and this could be actually a first option, especially with someone with gut issues, is to probably do anywhere from one to two cups of bone broth first thing in the morning. And it could be anything. You can do chicken, beef, doesn't matter. Every cup has about 10 to 11 grams of protein, and you're getting a good amount of glycine. Um, what's really important for people with gut issues is that they really try to minimize a lot of cold foods. Mm -hmm. So avoid your smoothies um, and um, you know raw veggies, things like that. So you want to go with cooked food because you, you really want to get foods that are um, almost – um, just easier to digest. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have the gut work over time. Mm -hmm. And so that's where smoothies, raw veggies are not an ideal situation. Usually most people get bloated. They get gas towards the end of the day when they do that first thing in the morning. Um, so I say bone broth, if you do that two or three times a week, that's actually really, really beneficial. Can you speak to why smoothies and raw veggies <laughs> can be hard for people? Because I think that's another concept. Yeah. You know, Instagram know. loves its smoothie bowls. <laughs> I know, I know. It's huge. I mean, I, I, I saw this one idea. I don't know what company it was, but it, you know, it, it came in a little container and everything was frozen. And Daily Harvest. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. You know, yeah. I'm sure they're killing and doing well, mm -hmm. but... They actually do have hot foods too that oh, okay. are actually really good. Like okay. not a whole lot of, like they have a cauliflower rice one that has like a yeah. pesto and okay. some veggies and stuff like that. But oh, yeah, well that, that's, that's good. They're branching out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in traditional Chinese medicine, but the little that I know, um, I know when there's a sort of digestive issue or gut issue, they consider like dampness mm -hmm. within the system. So that you don't want to create more dampness. You want to you want to create and warmth. You want to create you know. So um, that's why I find in clinically working with people that I notice God they always have smoothies all the time. And and um, once we take the smoothies out, um, then their digestion starts to improve. Mm -hmm. You know, and I and I tell and they go, well, it's so easy. I go, well, you know, getting your health back is not always easy. You know what I mean? So you're gonna have to sort of bite the bullet and go, okay, well, heat up bone broth. You know, go. Get some bona fide, um, you know, frozen bone broth, heat it up, have two cups in the morning. That's a good way to start the, the morning. Or you can even just do, you know, cook that vegetable soup and then have that in the morning a couple mm -hmm. times a week. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the smoothies are a problem because they're so cold. Mm -hmm. um, and then what people have to realize, too, and, and it's not the only cause of digestive issues, is that um, all vegetables, um, seeds, nuts, grains they all have uh, lectins in them mm -hmm. and so obviously with like um, seeds nuts and grains you can soak them overnight and that helps to uh, reduce not not the lectins so much but the phytic acid but you still have the lectins and so sometimes the lectins in the context of someone who's really struggling with gut issues can kind of overwhelm the system and so that's why um, cooking the vegetables although maybe takes out some of the nutrients it does help to to reduce the lectins mm -hmm. so that would be more ideal for someone uh, to do that. What about juices, like green juices? Yeah, um, 
if if someone likes to do that and they and they don't react to them, then I'm okay. Okay. But that kind of goes on the same lines of um, you know something that's cold and so forth because most people aren't going to drink a warm um, juice. Yeah, no, that yeah. sounds really Not, doesn't appealing. sound too appealing. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So kind of detach from what we traditionally think of here in this country as breakfast foods because when right. you do that, there are so many options oh it, it's 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 unending i mean just i mean you can do fish soup in the morning or mm-hmm. you can do like i mean for me i just do sardines i don't go you know with the bones and skin but i do boneless skinless you know sardines because it's easy right. you know um i know some people do oysters i won't do, do that but wow and you know first thing yeah but i don't know about that <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I couldn't do it but um you know doing that um and just getting something you know it doesn't and then that's the key thing is that people when they start to do that, they don't have to do huge amounts. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for some of the listeners that are, let's say, vegetarian or vegan, like I always tell people, look, it, if you're going to start to include animal products, you start very small. Right. You don't go, um, you know, go eat a eight ounce filet mignon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you start real small. Yeah. What about coffee? Yeah, coffee. That's always a fun topic. Controversial. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's sort of, I guess it can be controversial. I mean, it, Years ago, I used to be like, okay, no, you shouldn't have coffee at all. Mm-hmm. But when when I started doing the research on it uh, thoroughly, um, it there there are some benefits to it. Um, and normally, I tell people um, with with coffee consumption, I want people to thrive on it, not survive. Mm-hmm. So if people are surviving on it, and what I mean by survive is you know, they have their two, three cups in the morning and that's the only way they can function. And then at one o'clock, they're starting to crash. So they have to have a Red Bull or they have to have five-hour energy. That's a problem, you know? Um, and so um, usually, like most of the research that says, oh yeah, it helps with diabetes or it helps with, you know, these conditions or whichever, it's what we call the, just a bell curve. So, you know, it's anywhere from probably two to four cups around there and if you go anything over that then you're going to start to get symptomatic now with that we talked about biochemical individuality with one person or another um and so like my brother-in-law can drink coffee at seven o'clock at night and go to bed um and other people can't they drink you know coffee past 10 and they're like wired at night and that, that has to do with genetic mutations of a certain um, what we call SNP, single single nucleotide polymorphism, um, with um, SNPs. And so if someone obviously is very sensitive, then you have to be cognizant of that and, and probably have your coffee first thing in the morning, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And don't think beyond that. Um, whereas you have the fast metabolizers, and so with that, you have to make sure that, um, you know, they're not, because there's sort of a line that you can start abusing it. Uh, so you have to be careful of that. Mm-hmm. And and that's why, you know, I think it's good for people to maybe go off coffee every once in a while and see how you feel. Yeah. You know, and, but that's why I, I always tell people, look, water before your coffee. It's such a simple thing, but oh, that's not going to make a difference. It makes a massive makes difference. A difference. Yeah. yeah. Because if you hydrate first, you go, oh, well, you're getting your energy, you're getting your clarity, your focus from the water, or you're getting your bowel movement from the water, right? And then you enjoy your coffee later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's kind of go back to gut health. Mm -hmm. And so say that somebody is having issues and they're drinking water and they're eating PFF and maybe they've eliminated the common irritants, right? So gluten, dairy, corn, soy, legumes, sometimes eggs, maybe refined sugar. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're still experiencing symptoms. When is it time to see a practitioner um, and get the appropriate testing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say probably about um, 80% um, of people that I'm working with are already doing that. So they're doing the, you know, half your body went to the water, um, and then they are eating PFF most of the time, and then they avoid the big six. Mm -hmm. Um, So gluten, dairy, soy, corn, legumes, and eggs. Um, With someone like that, um, it definitely becomes more complicated. Um, so, you know, there's a certain percentage of people that they get off gluten and they're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm cured. I'm, I'm so much better. But unfortunately, um, there are other issues involved. So with someone like that, um, most likely we need to probably do further possible food sensitivity testing would be maybe one step. Um, and then the other part was to probably do a stool analysis and, and, I mean, collecting your poop is not always <laughs> your your fun activity that you want to do, but um, it, it's a it's one way to to address some of the issues that could be involved. Mm-hmm. So whether it's bacteria overgrowth or yeast, candida, or maybe someone picked up a parasite um, from eating too much sushi, or you know just going to Mexico, you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that would probably be the the next step that I would take. With someone. So somebody gets tested and say that they have a pathogen or yeast or whatever. What are the next steps usually? And again, it's so different because it depends completely on on the par- <laughs> on the pathogen. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, when when a stool test comes back result for a person, um, normally I'd say okay, there's probably going to be a digestive detox involved. Um, and so, um, I mean, there's, you know, there's all sorts of protocols that are out there where people use oil of oregano. Um, I'll use it all the time. Um, there could be combination products that are out there. Um, I would say the only, I think, issue that people might have is um, you also have to look at the other factors involved, not just taking the herbs and maybe a probiotic if, if they need that. Um, but you also have to look at the other things. So, for example, it could be as little as, okay, well, what do you do when you eat? And they, they look at me like, what do you mean? I use my fork and I'm using my spoon or whatever. I go, no, but physically, what are you doing? Are you sitting at your desk? Are you at, you know, the break room? Are you at your computer? Like all those di- different things matter. Because normally when, I, when we're getting someone who has been doing all the other stuff, they've been doing everything right, you know, and they're still having issues, then it's, it's a, probably a culmination of other th- factors that are involved. So they probably have to go eat in peace. Like if they're just answering emails all the time at lunch, well, you got to go take a break mm-hmm. and not work through lunch and, and do that. Um, it could also mean, okay, well, are you chewing your food enough? Are you producing enough hydrochloric acid? Because those are huge factors. Is your, is your body producing a bile acid? Because um, that emulsifies your fats. So it's not as easy as, okay, um, just taking an herb. Or, you know, if, if someone gets test positive for SIBO, 
well, they, they just can prescribe a rifaximin. Mm -hmm. But it goes well beyond that. Like y you only get, I think, a 30% improvement for a lot of people. And then usually the research shows that about two-thirds of those same people that go on rifaximin, they have a reoccurring SIBO. Mm. And usually yeah. that's because that they're not addressing some of the other things that are going on. Right. So what are some of the other things going on? Because SIBO is another one of those really hot things right now. Mm -hmm. Everybody, it seems like, is getting diagnosed with it. And yeah. everybody wants to know what the solution is because nobody, I think so many people just go to their um, GI or whatever and go on Rifaximin. Right. And then, they ha and then it recurs. And so nobody's really getting relief. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is... Um, it's it's multifactorial, so you do have to obviously address the bacterial overgrowth. So you can do the rifaximin. Um, there's there's good research on different herbs that will help with that. Um, so you can you can use other herbs besides rifaximin. But I think the biggest factor is um, once you do that, is that you you know most people are already following low FODMAP. So that's a that's a good way to to help with the uh, the symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, but at one point, what needs to happen is that there needs to be probably a reintroduction of probiotics or gut flora. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also needs to be um, a slow reintroduction of different types of vegetables, um, possibly fruit later on. Because at the end of the day, um, we want to create a lot of gut diversity. Because when you um, are limiting yourself too long with vegetables and fruits and everything else, then long-term, you're not going to get that gut diversity that we need. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and, and that, that takes a little bit of time um, because you don't want to introduce things too quickly. Um, and I see the biggest mistake is people just kind of go full on. So they just introduce everything at one time mm. or you have to do very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get people like, you know, they can do um, some garlic once they take care of some of the issues where they, before they couldn't. But you have to do one thing at a time right. and do it very slowly. Again, this is probably really specific for every person, but in general, mm -hmm. how long does it take to treat SIBO and then get to that phase where you can reintroduce? Yeah, I would say if you, if you know you have SIBO and then let's say, like normally what I like people to do, I have people do is probably eight weeks on some kind of herbs mm -hmm. um, and then... Usually within that time period, they should notice that the bloating should go start to diminish a bit. Um, and at that, that standpoint, uh, then I would suggest that um, we start to slowly introduce uh, some vegetables at that point. Mm -hmm. And we only do, I would, I'm almost conservative now these days where I just may introduce one new thing once a week. Mm -hmm. Whereas before I would do it maybe every three or four days, but I would do it almost once a week to see how they do. So I'm curious, what does a SIBO diet tend to look like if it's low FODMAP and it's also no dairy, gluten, corn, soy, all of that stuff? Well, and that's the thing for me is that I know most of the, most people will say low FODMAP and SIBO. Mm -hmm. I actually wouldn't do that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just that most people come to me oh, saying I'm already I've been put it. on a low FODMAP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would rather that if possible, if we can, we do the blood work to do the food sensitivity test. Okay. That's more important to me first to mm -hmm. look at that mm -hmm. because, I mean, as you know, low FODMAP, I mean, geez, what can you eat? It's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, don't eat anything, right? Yeah. Um, 
but yet there's things that you know some dairy sources and things like that that it could in my opinion probably are a bigger culprit mm. um, of the issue so that's why I'd rather do if we can the food sensitivity test first and rule out any potential causes of things or lectins that right. we can test for and say hey yeah you're reacting to rice you're reacting to you know chickpeas or whatever else that's going on mm-hmm. um, and then if we have to my last resort would be low FODMAP got it I'd rather go food sensitivity and then if let's say there's other things that pop up on the stool test then I would say okay let's take the, the sugar out for a period of time mm-hmm. even fruit sugar mm-hmm. um, and then I would go to low FODMAP got it I think for just from a, um, a practical point of view it's just, it's pretty hard. It's like the stress of having to eat low FODMAP. It's probably oh worse gosh, than I eating know. the FODMAPs. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's crazy. My brother had really bad gut issues a few years ago, and he was put on low FODMAP, and he's still on it. And I'm like, mm. and he's he doesn't have the issues necessarily, yeah. but I'm like, I don't know. That's tough. And like, I know onion, garlic. I mean, there are things that are found in everything, everything. right? So it's, yeah. it's so limiting. It's pretty limiting. So I would, I would try that. That would be kind of my last resort if we, okay. if we had to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would go more, okay, food sensitivity test. Okay. Yeah. Let's take out the sugar and fruit and then see how you do. So let's talk yeah. about the food sensitivity testing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that's controversial. Yeah. Some people say it's bullshit <laughs> yeah can you talk about that a little bit yeah i was one of those people that said it was bs um and it, it depends on the technology mm-hmm. so a lot of times that um colleagues and i we would we would do a lot of split samples on on different companies and mm-hmm. this company would say oh yeah ours is really good and then we send in our blood samples and then the split sample is totally different right going, oh my gosh and by the way split sample basically that means i put my blood into two t- different test kits but one would be my name and one would be your name. Mm-hmm. So same blood, but it should come back They're the same. They're giving you different results. Yeah. yeah. So that was an issue. Um, and then um, the other issue is that, um, like, for example, just a simple um, explanation is that your immune system is basically, you can think of like the armed forces. So Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard. So, um, most traditional immunologists, they're looking at IgE as an Edison, and so they're doing the skin scratch test, prick, or uh, they're doing blood work and looking at your IgE and seeing if you're reacting. Um, that's a straight-up allergy. So that's, you know, Will Smith in the movie Hitch, right? Mm-hmm. He, his face blows up, has to drink Benadryl. So that's not really what we're talking about. We're looking at a more delayed response, and we're looking at, two branches, typically IgA or IgG. And so the reason why people say that um, it typically is BS or whatever um, is that sometimes what happens is that you can test someone on IgA, for example, eggs, mm-hmm. and they're negative, like there's no reaction. So the, the person's like, oh, yeah, you can eat eggs. They're like, damn, like I notice when I do a- eggs, I'm reactive. And what ends up happening is when you're in IgG, they're positive on eggs. So that's why um, I run a lab I like that runs IgA and IgG at the same time mm. so they don't miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, one of the reasons why some of the things are missed or they come up negative is that, for example, with, um, um, with wheat, with any type of wheat product, 
most labs are only looking at alpha gliadin. Gliadin is the actual protein that potentially is a indicator that someone's reacted to wheat or gluten. Mm -hmm. But we know that there's alpha beta gliadin. There's omega gliadin. There's all these different subfractions. So you have to look for those. Mm. Otherwise, they can show up negative. Mm -hmm. And the person like, I don't know. I feel like I'm still reactive to wheat. Mm -hmm. But the test shows I'm negative. So another reason why food journaling is helpful too. Yeah, yeah. So that's why food journals helping. And and like I said, I've I told I've told people all the time that testing is not perfect, mm -hmm. but it's one way that we can try to pinpoint what may be the issue. What about when people say that you can come up positive for things that you just eat a lot? Oh yeah, that's um, and that that comes back to probably. Um, you know, I was just doing a video when you when you came in about mm -hmm. um, food sensitivity tests. And so, you know, common question I guess, Rob, so do I need to avoid this forever? Right. And I said, not if leaky gut's involved. And so um, the reason why I say that is if, if someone has recurring gut issues and they have leaky gut, well, yes, food sensitivity or their reaction to eggs or whatever else, almonds, um, yes, it's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. But the question we have to ask is, well, why are they reactive to almonds and then eggs? And normally in the context of leaky gut, because they have the, the porous um, intestinal lining that has bigger holes than it should, what tends to happen is that whatever food is most frequently consumed and, and eaten on a daily basis, day in, day out, those are the foods that usually show up on a panel. Right. Because those are the ones that constantly are being exposed to the immune system. Mm hmm Okay. So that's the sort of caveat as well on the, uh, the flip side. So, you know, if like a doctor suspects someone has C-like disease and they've been on a gluten-free diet for six months, mm -hmm. they'll say, well, I need you to eat gluten for the next two weeks and then we're going to test you. Now that can open a whole can of worms because I've had people do that and then they, they blow up. Ugh. Like their gut issues just go through oh the roof. Their, their, you know, their eyelids are all inflamed mm -hmm. and red and all kinds of other things. And the doctors, well, we have to confirm that you have an issue with Yikes. gluten. And the person's like, I have an issue with gluten, <laughs> you know? Wow. So that's the only that. caveat. Yeah. And so that's why people say, well, I've been gluten-free for three months and we're doing the food sensitivity test. And I go, well, I don't want to like inflame you. Right. Um, but there's a chance that it may not show up on the, on the actual food sensitivity test. Mm -hmm. So that's the only, you know, you know problem we might come across okay. complication. So what about um, like our, our lifestyle? So say that you're healing from a gut issue or you, you're just beginning to or whatever. Mm -hmm. Where does exercise come into play here? Yeah, exercise is, um, I mean, exercise, everybody thinks exercise is great. Um, and, and it is. I mean, it's great for brain health. Um, it's good for obviously muscles, tendons, ligaments, provided you do the right type of exercise. Uh, but it, when we're talking about the context of gut health, um, you know, I've looked at this extensively, um, and there's all sorts of research showing, you know, long-term endurance training, like ultra endurance athletes, as well as even like 20 minutes of HIIT training on a, like a, um, bicycle shows that it does, uh, cause a stress to the gut. So, um, now obviously we have to look at, okay, who was involved in the study and the age group and, and so forth and all those different things. But um, I think um, in the context of someone's uh, gut health, you have to consider everything involved. 
So for some people, if they have, you know, massive amounts of mental, emotional stress and they're stressed out from their kids and they're getting divorced and then they're trying to train for, you know, I don't know, Kona, Ironman, right? Well, that's a massive stress that has to be induced every day because in order to, you know, complete that event, you have to perform a certain amount of swimming, cycling, and running, right? Um, now, that's an extreme case, but sometimes what happens is for some people, uh, when they exercise too much in terms of volume, so that's either like, um, let's say if we're taking running, for example, like they're trying to run five miles every single day, well, that may be too much for someone at a certain period of time of their life. Not that it's bad, but it's just for them, like it's just pushing them over the threshold. Mm -hmm. Like with everything else that's going on in life, it's just too much. Mm -hmm. It's too stressful to the system, you know, or maybe they're, you know, they're, you know, on a project that's due in six months and they have to get it done. So they're basically only sleeping five hours a night. Mm -hmm. When the context of that, um, maybe exercise um, is too much for them or just the amount of exercise too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you recommend that people, if they have gut issues going on and if they have other stressors in their lives, do you recommend that they stop exercise or just walk or just reduce or what do you Yeah, to it's do? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. Um, because I'm, I mean, not, I'm not an exercise fanatic, but for me, since I was... 12 it's just part of who I am now it's part of my DNA mm -hmm. so I will normally try to exercise um, on a daily basis or at least five six days a week but what I tell people I recommend is look if you're in that state where you've got so much going on you're stressed out go exercise still it's just instead of running the five miles every day maybe tw twice a week you run five miles but the other four days a week, you run two and a half miles. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because um, it's usually the, the, in, the it's not the intensity, but it's the volume that usually kills people. Right. And it's just too much. Mm -hmm. And so they can't recover from it or it's just too hard on their, on their hormonal system and, and their um, the digestive system. I was talking to Dr. Marisa yesterday mm -hmm. and she had Hashimoto's and she had, you know, so and, and adrenal issues and all of this. And she was like, yeah, I just go to workout classes, but I leave after half an hour. And I was like, yeah. wow, I never even thought of that. Like, totally. Perfect <laughs> did you know example. that's a thing that people can do? I mean, I never, she's like, yeah, you just tell them beforehand, like, I'm done, I'm out. Yeah. And you just walk out and leave. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. imagine that. that. Yeah, you don't that's have a, to, like, that's a great die thing through to the whole thing. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, you just kind of go get your volume of exercise right. or your your dose, and then you're out. Yeah. Um, and the the other thing that people can do, too, is, if they still want to exercise hard, you know, they're really kind of like, that's their thing. That's mm -hmm. fine. But then what I would suggest people do is, you know, instead of doing CrossFit five days a week, okay, do it three times a week. But then the other two times go take a really like Hatha yoga mm. where it's mm -hmm. the whole, like, it's not, you know, at 150 degrees, you right. know, but it's the namaste. Like, it's like, okay, breath and mm -hmm. slowing everything down because when you slow down your breathing, what you're doing is you're shifting your body completely away from that fight or flight state and you're going into more rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And that's important to do after a really hard workout too. To yeah. Bring your, your body back down, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can literally sit there at home if you're working out or at the gym, put a towel on your face and just do some deep, you know, be 
diaphragmatic breathing for five minutes and you'll mm-hmm. shift your physiology within that five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Otherwise you're running around in fight or flight. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. So I want to shift to intermittent fasting really quick just because mm-hmm. so many people wanted to hear about it. It's kind of like kind of funny that we're doing gut issues and then like fasting. It's yeah. like, let's not do, if you have gut issues, maybe <laughs> yeah. focus on that. But I know for like SIBO, People, you know, like to make sure that you have long breaks between meals and you're not snacking, right? And and right. fasting can come into play with that. So um, can you talk about fasting and like when it's appropriate, who it's appropriate for and what it can actually help? Sure. Um, with intermittent fasting, I would say um, I'll take a little different approaches. I would say the two situations where you want to be very, very careful is if someone doesn't have good eating habits. Mm -hmm. Um, Because with intermittent fasting, if people don't know, usually people stop eating at 8 o'clock at night, and then they break the fast at 12 o'clock the next day. Usually, there's a lot of different protocols, but 16 hours of fasting, 8 hours refeed is normal, normally like the the go-to. If someone has really bad eating habits, the problem is when they break the fast, they kind of want to do the seafood diet. They just can eat everything in sight, or if they're going out to eat with their colleagues, they... I'm just going to get the French fries, you know, which mm-hmm. not is not ideal. Like, it's not the license to just eat whatever you want. You still have to eat, you know, good foods, PFF, protein, mass, fiber. Um, so that would be the first situation. And the second situation, if someone has really um, bad energy levels, um, then I would probably not recommend something like that. Um, there might be issues with their adrenal glands, or so they may not be able to compensate with the right amount of cortisol to help stabilize their blood sugar throughout the day. Um, but... I do find um, people with, you know, SIBO or gut issues, they find that it does help mm-hmm. um, by, by taking that break and fasting, which, um, which I have no problems with as long as they, um, they're recovering well from exercise and um, they're doing well and, and they're able to keep their blood sugar stable. Mm-hmm. And that's not a problem. And what about for hormones? Yeah, hormones is, is a little bit different situation, um, especially if there's a lot of uh, mental, emotional stress with someone. Um, then it's probably not the ideal sort of plan. And I, I look at intermittent fasting as a tool. So it's not right or wrong. It's just what's your situation and, you know, what's your goal and are you able to handle that type of plan? You know what I mean? Um, for me, for years, I used to, I mean, I've done IF since 2010. Um, and so... Um, Before it was trendy. Yeah, I mean, my colleague, John Berardi, a lot of people probably have heard of JB, but um, really good guy, precision nutrition. Um, and, um, you know, he we were speaking at a conference, and then we were just training together, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm fasting. And he was the guy who was known for six meals a day, like, you have to do this. Hmm. But he's very open to new ideas, and so he's like, Rob, you should try it. So I started playing around with it. And so for me, it, um, for periods of time, it was just convenient. I wanted to get going on writing a book or a project or article or whatever. So I wake up at five and then start typing away and not have to worry about food until later. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that people have to be aware of, and, you know, people are listening, this is probably fairly active, they work out. You have to make sure you time your exercise. So what I see often, big mistake, is that people will try to do the, you know, eight hour uh, to 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. fast, but they train in the mornings. Mm. So they train from 6 to 7, and then they don't eat from 7 to 12. And that's a pretty big mistake Mm -hmm. because by that time, either um, their energy level really suffers 
and they crave all kinds of foods. Um, and then the other thing is that they start to really suffer in the gym. Mm-hmm. So their strength level goes down, their nurse level goes down, and that's not ideal. So what is the solution to that if somebody has to go to the office at, you know, eight or nine in the morning and then they have, and their only time to work out is first thing in the morning? Yeah. So the other option would be, I guess you could think of it as a reverse IF. Right. Um, So eat in the morning and then. Eat in the morning and then basically you would finish at, let's say, your last meal at 4 p.m. Right. Or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you would break the fast at um, I guess 8 p.m. the next 8 p.m. the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so okay. that would be to do. So, but then you you know you do have to consider family life, right? So right. if you're coming home when your wife's preparing this great meal, you know, <laughs> um, which is my wife always does, which I'm so grateful and blessed <laughs> for, um, then that's a problem. Yeah. Right, because you're not spending time with your family and your kids and everything else. So right. that sucks. I mean, I I wouldn't want to do that. So you kind of have to weigh things out with that too. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, to close, I'm curious if there is something that you think a lot of people are doing that they should stop doing for their health. Hmm. I I mean, I think the biggest, just because I keep, people keep asking me and saying, oh, I'm doing this and that is, um, I think the biggest mistake is for people to watch these documentaries like Game Changers mm-hmm. and What the Health, mm-hmm. and they go, oh my gosh, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger says I shouldn't be eating meat anymore or, you know, like the Tennessee Titans are doing this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, coming from an, an expert in the field, um, I've done a lot of research. And so you have to be very, very careful with the documentaries because they sensationalize what's going on. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes you look at the research and, I mean, just because of who I am, like my wife and I, kids, we watched the movie, the documentary. Mm-hmm. And I sat there, literally, I had probably 15 pages of notes on a notepad <laughs> going, oh my God, this, this is that. And just one simple example that's, that um, sticks out to me is that um, one of the researchers that said that, um, you know, the only thing that has been shown to reverse heart disease is a plant-based diet. Right. Is low protein, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's an absolute lie because mm-hmm. if you look at the Mediterranean diet, it has shown to reverse diabetes. It's been shown to reverse heart disease, hypertension, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely known for obviously um, olive oil, obviously, but they also recommend fish. Mm-hmm. They do lamb. They do all kinds of other animal products. So to say that blanket statement, is, it's incorrect. And so unfortunately what I'm seeing is a lot of young kids seeing the movie documentary and going, oh my God, I need to stop eating meat. Right. And they're not in the this phase to do that. They need animal proteins because that's certain amino acids, certain mm-hmm. fats for their growth cycles. Mm-hmm. So when they're going through their growth spurts, it's very, very important that they have that, especially for connective tissue because the main amino acids that's missing in um, non-animal protein sources is lysine, which is very much uh, involved in collagen synthesis. Mm-hmm. So that can become a problem long-term, especially for a lot of the athletes that are trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then people also watch the documentaries and become internet experts. Correct. On <laughs> and what's veganism inter- or these, yeah, and, whatever the issue is. And what's really interesting is I was lecturing um, just a couple months ago and one of my colleagues who's, he is one of the paleo guys. Like he studied under Lauren Cordain mm-hmm. and he was going back and forth with a colleague because they're going to write a rebuttal. 
And he says, yeah, he goes, Rob, my colleague, he's, he was watching the documentary because he had to know what it was about. And he literally, the first research study, you know, they pop it up on the screen. Mm-hmm. He paused it. And he went on PubMed, which is basically right. looking at all the research journals. And he looked up the article and he's like, Mark, Mark Smith is, is my colleague. He goes, Mark, that study doesn't even say what they said it did. Oh, wow. Right. But it, it shows up wow. literally for like a tenth of a second, right? Right. And they go, oh my God, there's research. That's crazy. Yeah. So that's, crazy that's that why it's, that. you got to be so very, misleading. very careful. Mm-hmm. Very, very misleading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last thing, mm-hmm. what's a good PFF snack? Ah, <laughs> I would say like my favorite is going with like um, homegrown beef jerky. Mm-hmm. They're a local company um, and I really love what they do and what they stand for. Um, I love that because they have like they have a paleo one. They have all kinds of different versions, low sugar ones too. Um, but that and then I would go with either nuts or seeds. So if you can't handle nuts, then go with seeds. Uh, another company really good locals go raw mm-hmm. so they do um sprouted sunflower seeds and um pumpkin seeds mm-hmm. so that you're getting a little bit of protein you're getting the fiber from the seeds and then you're getting some of the fat too Love so it. that's really kind of simple easy doesn't melt in your bag or anything right. like that and it's easy to take on the go perfect amazing well thank you for coming on again thank sure you for having me i'm sure i will <laughs> sounds thank good thank you